We're going to look at the first epistle of Peter. Uh, I've already been asked why we went to first Peter and does it have anything to do with the times? And it really doesn't. It's just simply the book that I felt peaceable about. And in the evening meeting, we're going to address, by his grace, Second Peter. And First Peter is just one of those books that allows you to address so many subjects and go in so many different directions. And we don't want to be in a hurry in it. I also want to say I don't want to preach the book. Uh, I want to teach it. I don't want to get off on, on uh, preaching discourses. And so we're going to look at what Peter said, uh, try to apply it to those things that are most useful to us, and, and pray that God will bring profit out of it. Um, uh, for practical purposes here and now as well as our hope for the future. Peter has a great deal to say about our hope for the future and in the very first chapter he begins to set that foundation but there's some background that we need to lay and so if you'll allow me to do that before we ever get into the book proper and we hope to do that this morning uh, we'll lay some background. I also want to add this that we're going to try to hold this to about 45 minutes uh, if we possibly can. Let's pray together. Our Father, once again, we acknowledge that without you, we can do nothing. We pray this would not be an exercise in, in our own desires or an exercise of the flesh, but we pray that you'll make it by your Spirit useful for each one of us. And we thank you, our Father, for the ministry of the Word of Life. And we acknowledge that none of us has any wisdom in this Word, save it will come by the illumination of your Spirit. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we've exalted at your right hand, we pray that you'll grant to us quickening and profit. And in that name that's above every name, which he now possesses, we pray that you'll edify each one of us together. And we give you thanks. Amen. All right, first of all, we need to see something about the ministry of the Apostle Peter. Many of you have heard us say in the past that that the apostles, each one, were called with certain responsibilities. And so often they were called, and I wouldn't make a hard, fast rule out of this, but so often they were called consistent with those things that they were function occupations that they were functioning in ahead of time. For example, the apostle Paul's calling was to build, lay the foundation of, and build the church of Jesus Christ. And, of course, Paul, by occupation, was a tent maker. And there's an interesting parallel there. The same thing can be said with regard to the Apostle Peter. His ministry was that of an evangelist. And of course, uh, Peter was, uh, by occupation, a fisherman. And you can just kind of go on with that. When Jesus called John, for example, he was mending nets. Uh, and uh, John's ministry was always to mend the nets for the body of Christ. I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in the truth, John said. And so we need to see Peter in terms of what was his calling before the Lord. We each one have a measure of grace, and we each one have a measure of faith, Paul tells us in the 12th of his epistle to the Romans. And by the way, I have to say this. I've always been accused of going everywhere preaching the gospel, and I, I've always found it very difficult when I'm teaching a particular book to stay in that book because uh, no scripture is any private interpretation. I'm stretching this a wee bit, but every scripture reflects on every other scripture. Every verse is a commentary on the whole Bible, and the whole Bible is a commentary on every verse. And so if we're to see the sense of the message, then we're going to have to appeal to other books of the Bible. So uh, please understand in Paul's epistle to Romans in chapter 12, he said we have a measure of grace and a measure of faith. The measure of grace is your gifting, your calling. Uh, and we function within the sphere of that measure of grace. For example, Peter and Paul both had the same measure of grace. That is to say they were both apostles. But they did not have the same measure of faith. And the measure of faith is both the extent and the sphere in which you function with that measure of grace. 
for example, Paul says to the Corinthians, I uh, do not boast myself beyond my measure. And he says to the Corinthians, my measure reaches even unto you. Now, there were areas that Paul's measure did not reach to. You recall Paul is ready to go into Asia, and the Lord comes to him by the Spirit and says, don't go to Asia. Then he wants to go to Bithynia, and the Lord by the Spirit says, don't go to Bithynia. He wasn't going to go to Macedonia, at least not then, but he receives a vision from the man of Macedonia, come over and help us. And so Paul went to Macedonia. His measure was, was uh, uh, established by the calling of God. Uh, what is the sphere of your ministry? Not all of us go everywhere at once. There are those God has sent to Africa, those God has sent to India, those God has put in the United States, and so you go with it. That has to do with our measure of faith. So Paul said, if a man prophesies, let him prophesy according to his measure of faith. You can see that in terms of teaching ministries. Some men's teaching ministry focus on the family. Some men, no pun intended there. Some men's uh, teaching ministry focus on prophecy. Some focus on foundational doctrine. And so you go with it. That's a part of the measure of faith. And we each one do well to function within that measure. Uh, as, uh, uh, as a bird by wandering from his... Uh, I'm sorry, I'll quote the verse in a moment. Um, as a bird that wanders from his nest, so is a man that wanders from his place. The inference in the passage is obviously it's a dangerous thing to do. And so we function within our place, within our measure. But the measure of grace has to do with the calling that God has given to you. So again, Paul's measure of grace, Peter's measure of grace was the same. They were both apostles. But they did not have the same measure of faith. Those to whom they were called were very different. And so if you want to keep your finger in 1 Peter and come back with me to Galatians chapter 2, just let's try to illustrate that. <coughs> Galatians 2 just for a little bit of context verse 5 and following to whom did we not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you but from those who seemed to be somewhat whatever they were it makes no difference to me God shows personal favoritism to no man uh, verse 6 we're reading by the way I'm reading from the new King James for those who seemed to be somewhat added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcision had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectually in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now, do you see that distinction in their ministry? God called Peter to go to the Jews. God called Paul to go to the Gentiles. To Peter, it was given the responsibility to introduce the gospel of the kingdom to both Jew and Gentile. Jesus said that he imp had imparted the keys for the opening of that gospel to the apostle Peter. Now, there's a lot of things that ought to be said about that, but we're not in that sphere right now, so we'll not deal with it. But he gave Peter the keys to open the kingdom, first to the Jews, and then, and we'll talk more about that in this epistle, and then to the Gentiles. I have a parenthesis here. You, most of you know me. Can't, no, I can't teach without parenthesis. But it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And you kind of see that order. In the Old Testament scripture, you have in Genesis chapter 9, for example, an order in which God is dealing with people. This is, uh, how you say, corporate, uh, ethnic, national. Uh, ethnic's a better word. You recall the prophecy that Noah gave to his sons? Uh, he said, I will enlarge Japheth. He will dwell in the tent of shame, 
and Canaan will be a servant. You remember that? Well, that's kind of an ethnic division. And you can look at the world and see the circumstance in the world so follows. Japheth rules the world. That's European nations. Uh, we dwell in the tent of Shem, the idea of uh, blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be a servant and so forth. We dwell in the spiritual tent of Shem. Uh, it was to Shem that God gave the revelation of the truth and of course Abraham and Isaac and Japheth all came through the line of Shem. And so we're dwelling in the blessing of Shem's tent. And then he said Canaan would be his servant and that addresses the third world nations. And the third world nations are third world nations because they've been on the tail end of all of this. Now there are a lot of reasons it could be expressed to point that out but we're not here to do that right now. But Jesus said the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And so and it's always to the Jew first in terms of the ministry of the gospel. But isn't it interesting when the gospel of the kingdom began to be opened to the, rather than just Israel, but to the world, God reversed that order. In Genesis, Genesis, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 8, uh, to whom is this gospel sent? Anyone remember? And, and Philip is holding this revival you'll recall, in Samaria. And uh, the Lord comes to Philip and spirits him away down to Gaza in order that he can preach to whom? The Ethiopian eunuch. Third world. Y'all following? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And then in chapter 9 of Acts, here is the Apostle Paul's sudden conversion. So here is the Jew in the middle of those two. He's kind of that, uh, how you say, axle for the two. And then in Acts chapter 10, Japheth, who had been first, is now last. And Japheth was, Acts 10, Cornelius. So we've gone in the old covenant economy from uh, uh, Japheth having predominance. We're talking about world situation now. Japheth having predominance to dwelling in Shem's tent to the third world uh, nations of the world in uh, Canaan, and of course he's reflected out of the line of Ham. And then when that gospel is introduced, that whole thing is turned over, and the first is last, and the last is first. Now, uh, you're wondering, why in the world did I deal with that anyhow? Well, I want, you, I want you to see that while Peter was going to the Jews, Peter was responsible to introduce that gospel to each of these areas, to each of these peoples. And so Peter is introducing uh, the gospel of the kingdom to Japheth in the ministry of, uh, of uh, Cornelius and he is on the day of Pentecost introducing that gospel to the Jews so to the Jew first and then to the Gentile Peter had the keys but his ministry did not extend beyond that his ministry was primarily to the Jews as we've read it here now you're going to reflect that when you come into 1 Peter so let's come back to 1 Peter if we, could, if we might please now, of course, when he writes this epistle, he's writing to Christian Jews, and since Christian Jews had been dispersed along with unconverted Jews because of the persecution that began to be placed upon not just Christians at that time, but Jews as a whole by the Romans, many of these uh, believers, along with others, were scattered across the world. And the Apostle Peter is writing a general epistle uh, to all of these Jewish Christians that have been scattered across the world. So verse 1 and following. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
elect according to the foreknowledge of God, of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice in verse 2, and I need to comment on that before we get involved in it, but you notice this first elect, then foreknowledge, then sanctification, then obedience, and then sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll try to look at that as we get through uh, the verse, but I have to stop and address the word elect. Now, when I began to study for these lessons, I thought to myself, oh, I've gone and done it now. I've picked a book that right off the bat gets me into a controversy. Um, and so you'll just have to bear with us all that and, and recognizing that uh, uh, while we have an inspired book, we don't have any inspired interpreters of this book. My words are not infallible, but I will tell you what I believe, and I believe it firmly, and I wouldn't give you salt for a preacher uh, who didn't believe what he was preaching. But I recognize that this is a controversial subject, and I'm going to throw it out to you. And I had a professor of Old Testament who used to say when he would touch on one of those things that seemed controversial, he said, well, you young men just chew on that a while. He's an old German uh, brother named Augenbaugh, and uh, uh, he's with the Lord now. And so I suggest to you, if this seems a wee bit difficult to swallow, then just chew on it a while. The word elect must be addressed. Why did some Jews embrace the gospel and others not? Again, we must appeal to another book, so if you'll come back with me, please, to Romans and chapter 11. Paul's addressing this same difficulty. His epistle to the Romans was to a great extent uh, written to settle a controversy that had arisen between Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church at Rome. You remember, every epistle, was its writing was provoked by something. And the Spirit of God then once he had provoked the writing of the epistle, bore these men along to give the message that he intended. But something provoked them to write. And Paul's letter to the Romans was to a great extent intended to settle the controversy that was existing between Jewish and Gentile Christians. So chapter 11, did I say that? Mm -hmm. Chapter 11 of Romans. I say then, has God cast away his people? And in the context... Beginning with chapter 10, he's talking, well, chapter 9, in fact, he's talking about Israel. Israel, the nation. Will you allow, allow me, before I finish reading the verse, forgive me this uh, hopping around, but uh, this needs to be said, I think, before I go any farther. Do not confuse Israel with the church. Whatever you do, don't confuse Israel with the church. We are not spiritual Israel. We are never in the New Testament ever referred to as the children of Jacob by faith. We are the children of Abraham by faith and Abraham was not an Israelite Abraham was a Hebrew a Hebrew uh, is a, a river crosser literally is what the word means it comes it's a derivative of the of the uh, his grandfather's name Eber but it means river crosser and Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob was the first Israelite Jacob's name was changed to Israel and out of Jacob came 12 sons and you are never referred to as spiritual Israel. You are not the children of Jacob by faith, you're the children of Abraham by faith. And out of Abraham came two lines, a natural line and a spiritual line. I will make your uh, seed as multitudinous as the sand which is on the seashore and the stars which are in the heavens. The sand on the seashore is God's earthly inheritance through Abraham, Israel. The stars of the heavens are God's heavenly inheritance through Abraham, the church. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ, God's son. Israel is Jehovah's wife. 
And God looked out over the nations of the world and he called out to himself a wife called Israel. And throughout the Old Testament scripture, Israel is referred to as God's wife or he their husband. I was a husband unto you, the prophet Isaiah says. And through that wife Israel, God begat for himself a son named Jesus. And for that son, he is calling out of the Gentiles a bride. Now, God always has a remnant. And in Israel's economy, he had a remnant of Gentiles that were made a part of Israel. In the church's economy, he has a remnant of the Jews that are being made a part of the church. And so there are neither Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond, free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. But that distinction has to be kept true. And since I've said all that, I'll say this. There are those that are teaching today that God has abandoned Israel. In fact, what he's done is made us a part of Israel. If Israel's abandoned, so are we. Because we have been made a part of Israel because we are the bride of the king of Israel, their Messiah. And so much could be said about that. But anyhow, forgive that digression, but that needs to be emphasized. And so whatever you do, do not allow someone to suggest to you that God has cast away his people whom he foreknew. And I better read my text now because I'll quote it all I get to. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. That remnant, coming back to 1 Peter, that remnant according to the election of grace is the group that the Apostle Peter is now writing to. Those that God has called out of Israel for the church. The rest of Israel, if we had gone on to read, have been blinded until such time as a deliverer comes out of Zion and turns away ungodliness from Jacob. When the deliverer came, that is Jesus, he did not come the first time out of Zion. Did he? He came out of Calvary. When he came the first time, he came from Calvary in humiliation. When he comes the second time, he comes out of Zion in power and great glory. When he came the first time, he came on the colt full of an ass, humiliation. When he comes the second time, he'll come on a white horse. When he came the first time, he came wearing a crown of thorns. When he comes the second time, he'll come, the scripture says, wearing many diadems. Great contrast in those two comings, one in humiliation, the other in power and great, one to work redemption, and the other to bring reformation or regeneration, that is to the earth and the whole creation of God. All right, so we're going to address this issue of the word elect. The reason that this group of Jews believed is because they were a part of the remnant according to the election of grace. It's always interesting to me that uh, uh, the, uh, when the Apostle Paul is rehearsing the words of the Old Testament record, and there is Elijah sitting under that juniper tree saying, Kill me, Lord, I'm the only one left. And God says, I've reserved to myself 7,000. Now, don't you think that's interesting that that's such an even number? And uh, if, in fact, now we approach the controversy. If, in fact, God had left the choice of redemption to us, do you think it would be an even number? Uh, not on your life. You remember when you come to the Revelation and uh, God uh, calls out of the tribes of Israel his 
first fruit unto God out of Israel, which is what they're called in the Revelation chapter 7. And he said there are 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, save Dan and Ephraim, for very important reasons. How come just 12,000? Because they are an elect remnant that God has chosen himself. And not only that, bless your heart, dear ladies, they were all men. And uh, so here is the sovereign election of God for a particular purpose. And that's what Peter is expressing here. He said the reason that you Jews believed the record that God gave concerning his son, as opposed to this multitude of Jews who did not believe, is because God blinded them and gave you light. You are uniquely chosen out. The word elect is the word eklektos, and it means to call out. Now, I recognize that so often, and we're coming to the next word, so often election is defined in the context of God's foreknowledge. That is to say, God knew what I would do, and therefore he did it. Now, what does that do? That puts the whole work of redemption into my hands, and not God's. And we say, well, since God saw ahead, and of course God does know all, he knows uh, the end from the beginning, and he knows what, certainly knows what I'm going to do. The issue is, the question is, did God act on my will, or did he act on his own will? Uh, through his own will begat he us by the word of truth, the apostle James tells us. God is acting on what he wants to do, not on what I want to do. And I want to suggest this to you, that where spiritual things are concerned, and perhaps a lot of other things as well, you never made a right choice in your life. You were dead in trespasses and in sins, and a dead man can't make a right choice. And God had to do something for me as a dead person in sin that I could not do for myself or would not do for myself. Again, I remember the words of Dr. Lewis Perry Schaefer uh, with regard to the scripture, he said the word of God or the Bible is not such a book as a man would write if he could or could write if he would. And that same thing could be said about redemption. It's not such a choice as I would make if I could or could make if I would. Am I talking too fast? Y'all have to. <coughs> so the word foreknowledge, what does it mean? In <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, uh, Paul uses that term. Whom he foreknew, them he justified. Whom he justified, them he... Uh, 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 called, I'm sorry, whom he called them he justified, whom he justified them he also glorified. And so the thought is, well, God foreknew what I was going to do, and so he did. Well, let's see if that's the way the word foreknowledge is used. Uh, the verse we just read, I'm going to read it again very quickly. You don't need to turn to it if you want to. For God has, this is uh, Romans 11 and verse 2. For God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah and so forth? Now let's think about this a moment. God foreknew the nation of Israel. Does that mean that Israel is down in Egypt and Israel decided that they wanted to leave Egypt? And so they called on the Lord and asked God to get them out of Egypt and therefore God came down and delivered them. As a matter of fact, when Moses went down there, they didn't even know the Lord. That's what God said of them, you remember? By my name Jehovah was I not. And they were in idolatry and they brought that idolatry, some of that idolatry with them the rest of it they embraced in the land of Egypt. And all of the plagues that were visited on the Egyptians were visited on the gods of Egypt, according to the 33rd of Numbers. God brought judgments on all that. And every one of those plagues, those ten plagues, was a visitation on a particular god of Egypt. And so was it Israel really deciding that they wanted to leave and God therefore responding to that? Or was it God coming down and saying, I'm going to take you out? 
And I think it becomes evidence when Moses was met by the Lord. He said, I've seen, I've seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry, and I've come down to deliver them. You say, well, didn't they cry? The scripture says they cried out by reason of their bondage. They weren't crying out looking for the Lord. They were crying out because they were miserable. And God saw their misery, and God came and delivered them. So Moses comes down, and he says to, Paul says, I speak as a man. He comes down to, uh, what's the old boy that's running things in Egypt? Uh, Pharaoh, yes. Comes down to Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, I've come down with a message of deliverance, and if you and your people, Egypt, will only hear this message of deliverance, we'll take you all out to a land that flows of milk and honey. Is that what he said? No, one way he said, was it? He said, Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go. Moses came down to get Israel. He didn't come down to get Egyptians. And you'll recall that when they left, a great mixed multitude went with them. And that mixed multitude were those that saw that Egypt was decimated. And obviously God is with this people. So I'm going to go along with this people because it looks expedient. And a lot of people uh, get identified with Christianity but never become Christians because they see the expediency of being in that economy. They like the people. Maybe they like the worship. Maybe they see that God blesses this people. But they get identified in an economy because of God's blessing, but they never embrace the God that gives that blessing. And that was the mixed multitude that came out. And so God brought a sovereign election. And the word foreknowledge then is used in the sense, and you see this in Jeremiah chapter 33, it is used in the sense of foreloving. Whom I, Jeremiah 33, whom I, uh, I'm sorry, I have loved you, quote in Rome verse, I have loved you with everlasting love, therefore I called you. The call of God always comes as a result of the love of God. Here in his love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the satisfaction for our sin. Looking at that verse yet further, come with me please to Acts chapter 2. Or word, I should say, yet further. <coughs> Now, Acts chapter 2, of course, Peter's in process of preaching that grand message to this Jewish group. And by the way, uh, it needs to be kept in mind again that Peter on the day of Pentecost was preaching to Jews. Uh, there are oftentimes verses quoted from Peter's message and to his statements that followed his message uh, that are applied generally to Gentiles as well, and they are not applicable to Gentiles. It, me it needs to be kept in mind that while all Scripture was written for me, not all Scripture was written to me. Feel another bunny path there, but I'll try to let that one alone. Uh, for example, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Uh, 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 repent and be baptized uh, that your uh, uh, sins may be blotted out. Well, uh, it was necessary that Israel, the Jews, embrace the gospel and be baptized before their sins could be blotted out. And you'll notice that's plural, not singular. Sins, acts, not sin root. Sin is the root, sins are the fruit. And it was necessary for them to be cleansed in the waters of baptism before then they might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent and be baptized for remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That order was necessary for them because they were Jews. 
But you come over to Cornelius' house. Hello? And Peter is preaching. And while he's... I'm, I'm thinking about something I want to tell you. Repetition, price of knowledge. Uh, and while Peter is preaching, the scripture says the Holy Spirit fell in... This is Peter's testimony in Acts 11. You remember when he came back and had to report all this to those Jews that heard he'd preached to Gentiles and they were all upset because he'd preached to Gentiles. And Peter says, while I yet spake, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. Well, they said, then God's granted redemption, repentance rather to the Gentiles. But you notice the order. The Holy Spirit fell on them before they were ever baptized. That's because they were Gentiles. And Gentiles were without hope and without God in the world. To uh, What profiteth then the Jew? Much every way. To them gave, uh, God gave the oracles. To them were committed the oracles of God. God gave them the word. They were responsible. Do much is committed, much is required. They knew the truth of God. And they did not obey that truth. And therefore they had to be cleansed from the defilement of their sins. Plural. But not these Gentiles. They were in ignorance. And because they were in ignorance, uh, and sin is not imputed. When I do that, that means I want you to finish the verse. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. And so they didn't have sins. I didn't say they hadn't sinned. Don't mishear me now. Certainly they had. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. So the root of sin was all they were guilty of. Born in the first man, Adam. And so they did not have to be baptized for the remission of sins in order they might receive the Holy Spirit. They had to be, they received the Holy Spirit, and as a result of that, they were baptized. So that order needs to be noted. And who is speaking? Every time you study any passage, always keep in mind who's speaking, what's being spoken of, and who's being spoken to. And very often that who's being spoken to, we lose track of. And therefore confusion sets in. I know I'm laboring a point, and you forgive me, but Matthew's gospel is tremendously important in this connection. Certainly Matthew's gospel is written for us. And great benefit, great profit is to be obtained for the church of Jesus Christ in the study of Matthew's gospel. But Matthew's gospel is written for the benefit of the Jew. And it has a message in it like no other gospel, parables included, that are included in no other gospel, because it uniquely has a message to the Jew, and not just to the Jew in general, but to the, to the Jew of the last day. Hence those parables in Matthew 24 and 25 that uniquely apply to the last days. Okay, I'm sorry, close parenthesis on all that. Acts chapter 2, Peter's message, verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God do, did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now watch this. Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and, what? Foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified him and put him to death. By the way, it's interesting to me that in this one verse, uh, the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God are both suggested. You see that? He was delivered up by the determinate counsel of God. God decided, God determined to give Jesus up to death for the purpose of redemption. But they, by wicked hands, crucified him. God hath made all things for himself. Solomon said, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, to emphasize the word we're after, you'll note foreknowledge. He was delivered up through the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. 
Now, if we're interpreting the word foreknowledge, it's the same Greek word. If we're looking at the word foreknowledge in, in terms of God saw what we were going to do and therefore he decided to act uh, in like manner. God saw I was going to receive Jesus, so he decided to elect me. Well, if we transfer that idea to this verse, does that really make sense? God saw that Jesus was going to die for the world, and so he elected him to die for the world. Doesn't make any sense, does it? You only see this word properly if you understand that the word foreknowledge in the New Testament is used in the sense of foreloving. Now, you transfer that to its usage in the Old Testament, for example. Uh, 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 what's the first man's name there? Uh, Adam, thank you, yes. The scripture says that Adam knew his wife, and she begot a son. That's loving his wife, and she begat a son. And so that word is used throughout the Old Testament scripture. And he knew, and he knew, and he knew, and she begat, and she begat, and she begat. Same idea is applied here. It is used in the sense of foreloving, that God so loved that he gave. And he gave for the, purposes, uh, for the purpose of redeeming what was his. And so the sense of the word foreknowledge is not that God knew what I was going to do, and therefore he acted on it but rather because God foreloved me, and because he foreloved me, he elected me to himself. And since we're on this subject, I want to interject one other thing here very quickly. Don't confuse the two words, election and predestination. While certainly they're cousins to each other, they're not addressing precisely the same thing. Predestination has to do with eternity. We were, according to the Apostle Paul, predestined in Christ to be conformed to the image of his Son. God predestined us in eternity past, to be conformed to his, uh, the image of his son in eternity future. But election is in time. Because God had predestined us, he therefore elected us. Because he had predetermined, and that's the word, because God had predetermined to make us his sons, he came into time in the person of Christ and called us out. And that's the word election. Election is God's performing what he had predetermined in eternity. And you, like Christ, in a very real sense, are going from glory to glory. From glory to glory has to do with your ultimate destiny. Faith to faith has to do with your progression practically toward that destiny. Okay, before I move on with this any further, are there any comments or questions? And I would fully understand if there are. All right then, so Peter is writing to that unique group of Jews who were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Is that It is that remnant according to the election of grace that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 11. And then the rest were blinded, awaiting the hour when a deliverer will come out of Zion to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I reemphasize that Peter's primary ministry is to the circumcision, to uh, uh, the elect Jews and so he's writing to the strangers the dispersion that uh, uh, is uh, scattered abroad okay moving on somewhat in this verse and I'll have occasion to come back to it so I'm not going to labor it at length right now um, I said I was going to tell you something a moment ago so I'm going to stop and tell you now you all forgive me for this all right um, I was thinking about Peter. I have to interject this. I was thinking about Peter when he was preaching to Cornelius' house. You know, Peter was that individual who had the unique blessing of being interrupted uh, by all the members of the Godhead. 
Such a blessing. <laughs> uh, you'll recall he, he says to the Lord Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, um, he's on a Mount of Transfiguration. I'll get it in order. He's on a Mount of Transfiguration, and, and suddenly uh, there appears uh, 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 Moses and Elijah uh, with the Lord Jesus conversing and talking about uh, his death that he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And Peter's terrified. And the scripture says he spake because he didn't know what to say, you know. And, and he was just in this terrified, it's kind of like whistling going through a graveyard. That's kind of where he was. And so Peter says, Lord, let's build here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, a voice came from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. In other words, hush up, Peter, and just listen. He was interrupted by the Father. And then Jesus is announcing his death. You remember that he's about to accomplish at the cross. And Peter said, oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Get thee behind me, Satan. And you say, we're not the things that be of God, but interrupted by the Son. And then uh, when he's preaching to Cornelius' house, while I yet spake, this, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us, interrupted by the Holy Spirit. You know Every preacher should be so blessed. <laughs> Got to be a lesson further in that. Okay, they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. Now, I just want to take a little time now to define the word, and we'll have occasion to talk about it uh, later on in other lessons. Sanctification is not righteousness. Sanctification is a translation of the Hebrew word hagios, the Old Testament word godesh is its counterpart. And both of those words, both in Hebrew and in Greek, have the idea of being separated unto. Uh, the word sanctification, as a matter of fact, was used by the Greeks, translated in other places in Scripture, holy, same word, the word holy, the word saint, and the word sanctify are all the same Greek word. And uh, the word was used of the prostitutes that were serving in the temples of the pagans in Greece. And the idea was that they were set apart to something. And what the Apostle Paul is saying in his epistle as he uses it, what Peter is saying here is that here are a people who are sanctified or separated, if you would, to a holy purpose. Do you remember when Daniel was uh, called to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and he, his presence was announced there. They said of him that he is that one in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Isn't that an interesting statement? In contrast to the kinds of gods that they were accustomed to serving, here was one that was a servant of that holy God, a separate, separate from all the rest different from all the rest that's the word godesh and it comes over into the into the greek with the same idea that these people are separated from all the rest they're unique they're different now i emphasize again the word sanctification does not imply righteousness righteousness is just or justified i should say standing with god it is a just position before a holy God. You'll remember some of you that the book of Leviticus tells us that, that the uh, high priest was to wear the names 
of the tribes on epaulets on his shoulder, six on one side and six on the other side. And the phrase goes on to say that the priest might bear the iniquity of the holy things. Now that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Bear See, they were holy because they were separated to God. But there was iniquity that worked in them. To stretch this yet further, you remember on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, it fell on a bunch of individuals who, while redeemed, were nonetheless struggling with a lot of personal sins. I think that goes without saying. Yes? I mean, can we identify with that? Hello? Well, uh, you remember that that uh, the advent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was a fulfillment of an Old Testament uh, feast day. They went from the Passover, which was the cross, to unleavened bread, which was the death and burial of the Lord Jesus, uh, to the feast of first fruits, which was the resurrection, and finally, the feast of weeks, the Jews called it, ultimately became called the feast of Pentecost because it was the 50th day, and that came out of their uh, experience with uh, uh, Greek uh, culture and captivity in the days of Alexander the Great and so forth and the Septuagint, Septuagint translation and so forth. And so it came to be called Pentecost, 50th, the 50th day. And you recall in the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, in contrast to every other feast of the Lord, the bread that was baked in two loaves, very important, Jew and Gentile, had to be baked with leaven. And every other feast, leaven was excluded because leaven is a picture of sin, always a picture of sin. Another digression right here. In the parables of Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a woman that hid leaven in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. And some have come along and said, well, see, leaven is a picture of the kingdom of God. It is not. He didn't say that. He said, the kingdom of God is likened unto a woman who hid Leaven in three measures of meal. The whole thing is a figure of the kingdom of God. And it points to the corruption that was going to come to the word of God as the kingdom of God progressed. Kingdom of heaven, I'm sorry. Belay that. Kingdom of heaven progressed in the world. And that's precisely what happened. The three measures of meal. You've always dealt with three categories of people's in the world, spiritually speaking. In Jesus' day, it was the Pharisee and the Sadducee and the Herodian uh, in the... Uh, our day, with regard to the Jews, it's the Orthodox and the Conservative and the Reform. With regard to the Christian, it's the Fundamentalist and the, and the Conservative and the Liberal. And you've always got those three avenues to deal with. And the leaven was hidden in all three measures of meal until the whole thing was corrupted. And Jesus, in all those parables, is pointing to iniquity and righteousness developing together until such time as he should take out the righteous or I should say destroy the iniquity and redeem the righteous. So leaven is always, always, always a picture of sin. And so why then? In the Feast of Pentecost, is it baked with leaven? Well, because he's pointing to the fact that when the Holy Spirit fell, it fell on sinners. Redeemed sinners, but nonetheless sinners. But it was baked. And now I'm no cook. And as I said a little earlier, some of the earlier, it doesn't pay to know too much. And I, I've, I've managed to stay out of the kitchen all of my married life. I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> very grateful for my, She usually runs me out and for a lot of reasons. Uh, the uh, uh, baking, however, of leaven is yeast, yes? What happens to it when you bake it? No, 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 no. When you bake it, kills it. 
Yes, it kills it. And the old man is crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed that you should henceforth not serve sin. So when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and all these people were born again, the leaven was baked. That's the idea. But the leaven was there nonetheless. And, and uh, John then writing in his first epistle says, Brethren, I write these things to you that you sin not. In other words, he said, I don't want you to sin. And I don't want you to get the idea I do want you to sin. But, oh, I'm so grateful for that. But if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he's the satisfaction for our sins, not for the sin, ours, but also for the whole world. An advocate, the lawyer, that's what an advocate is, one who pleads your cause. And we have an advocate in the heavenly that pleads our case. So we are a people sanctified to him, but sin still works in us. And therefore, sanctification is not righteousness. God has made us righteous, and he is in the process of sanctifying us in a practical way. So Paul writing in his first epistle to the Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God, even your sanctification that you abstain from, and he lists a lot of those nefarious things we get ourselves involved in. So it is a separation unto himself that he's looking at in the sanctification. Now notice further, in sanctification of the Spirit, and obviously only the Spirit can do that. Maybe I ought to add this one thing to it. Uh, you might, uh, those of you, most of you have raised children, I'm sure, most of you are all of you, and uh, uh, if you had kids like I was, anyhow, uh, you had to every now and then rescue them from mud hole. I love playing the mud. And, and I remember one a particular case. I said I wasn't going to preach this. You forgive this personal illustration. But uh, when I was a little kid, we lived in Washington, D.C. during the war. And uh, uh, my mother got me all cleaned up. And, and uh, we were going to go somewhere. I don't remember.